61, a rather said, an admirable old proverb, but alack, the adage, or the times, or both, are out of joint the wholesome maxim has lost its force and homes for charity must now be far as the poles asunder, ere the benign influence of the weeping goddess can fall upon its wretched supplicants. In private life the neglect of a domestic hearth for the vainglorious squandering abroad of the means that could and ought to render that the chief seat of comfort and independence, calls down upon the thoughtless and heartless squanderer and abuser of his means the just indignation and merited contempt of every thinking and properly constituted mind. The charity that does not begin at home is the worst species of unjustifiable prodigality and the first step to the absolute ruin of the nearest and dearest, for the sake of the profligate and abandoned, and no sophistry can justify the apparent liberality that deprives others of their just and urgent dues. It may be and is most noble to feed the widow and to clothe the orphan, but where is the beneficence of the deed if the wife and children of the ostentatious donor the victims of the performance of such acts are left themselves to endure misery and privations, from which his inadequate means cannot exempt the stranger and the giver's own household. The sparrow who unwittingly rears the cuckoo's curious offspring, tending with care the ultimate destroyer of its own young, does so in perfect ignorance of the results about to follow the misplaced affection. The cravings of the interloper are satisfied to the detriment of its own offspring, and when the full-fledged recipient of its misplaced bounty no longer needs its aid, the thankless stranger wings its way on its far-off course, selfishly careless of the fostering bird that brought it into life and this may be looked upon as one of the results generally attendant upon a blind forgetfulness of where our first endeavors for the amelioration of the wants of others should be made. It has ever been the crying sin of the vastly sympathetic to awake for the miseries of the distant, and blink at the wretchedness their eyes if not their hearts must ache to see. Their charity must have its proper stage, their sentiments the proper objects, and their imaginations the undisturbed right to revel in the supposititious grievances of the far-off wretched and oppressed. The poor black man, the tortured slave, the benighted infidel, the debased image of his maker, the sunken bondsman, these terms must be the open sesame for the breasts from whence spring Bibles, brides, blankets, glass beads, pocket combs, tracts, teachers, missions, and missionaries. Oppression is what they would put down, but then the oppression must be a foreign manufacture, your English, genuine homemade article. Though as superior in strength and endurance as our own canvas is to the finest fold of gauze like cambric, is in their opinion a thing not worth the thought. A half-oppressed Kaffir is an object of ten thousand times more sympathy than a wholly oppressed Englishman, a half-starved Pole the more fitting recipient of the same proportion of actual bounty to a wholly starving peasant of our own land of law and liberty. Let one-tenth the disgusting details so nobly exposed in the Times newspaper as to the frightful state of some of our legalized poor law inquisitions, appear as extracts from the columns of a foreign journal, stating such treatment to exist amongst a foreign population, and mark the result, why, the town would team with meetings and the papers with speeches, royal, noble, and honorable chairman and vice-chairman would launch out their just anathemas against the heartless despots whose realms were disgraced by such atrocities, think, think of the aged poor torn from their kindred, caged in a prison, refused all aid within, debarred from every hope without, think of the flesh, the very flesh, rotting by slow degrees, and then in putrid masses falling from their wretched bones, think, we say, on this then give what name you can, save murder, to their quickly succeeding death, fancy children children that should be in their prime so caged and fed that the result is disease in its most loathsome form, 
and with all its most appalling consequences, no hope, no flight, the yet ended, as it were, chained to the spot, with mute despair watching the slow infection, and with breaking hearts awaiting the hour the moment when it must reach to them, we say, think of these things not as if they were the doings in England, and therefore legalized matters of course but think of them as the arts of some despot in a far-off colony, and oh, how all hearts would burn all tongues curse and call for vengeance on the abettors of such atrocities, the supporters of the rights of man would indeed pour forth their eloquent denunciations against the oppressors of the absent, the poetry of passion would be exhausted to depict the frightful state of the crimeless and venerable victim of tyranny, bowing his gray hairs with sorrow to the grave, while the wailing of the helpless innocents different indeed in color, but in heart and spirit like ourselves, being sprung from the one great source, would echo throughout the land, and find responses in every bosom not lost to the kindly feelings of goodwill towards its fellows, had the would-be esteemed philanthropists but these foreign cues for passion, they would indeed drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty, and uphold the free, confound the ignorant, and amaze, indeed, the very faculties of eyes and ears, but, alas, there is no such motive, these most destitute of destitution's children are simply fellow countrymen and fellow Christians, sons of the same soil, and worshippers of the same God, they need no good works in the way of proselytion to save them from eternal perdition, consequently they receive no help to keep them from temporal torture, to convince themselves that these remarks are neither unwarrantably severe, nor in the slightest degree overcharged, let our readers not only refer to the revolting doings chronicled in the times, but let them find the further illustration of this foreign pension in the recent doings at the magnificently attended ball given in behalf of the Polish refugees, and consequently commanding the support of the humane, enlightened, and charitable English, and then let them cast their eyes over the cold shoulder turned towards a proposition for the same act of charity being consummated for the relief of the poverty-stricken and starving families of the destitute and deserving artisans now literally starving under their very eyes, located no farther off than in the wretched locality of Spinalfields. An opinion and doubtless an honest one is given by the Lord Mayor, that any attempt to relieve their wants, in the way found so efficacious for the Polish refugees, would be madness inasmuch as it would, as heretofore, prove an absolute failure. Reader, is there anything of the cuckoo and the sparrow in the above assertion? Is it not true? And if it is so, is it not a more than crying evil? Is it not a most vile blot upon our laws a most beastly libel upon our creed and our country? Is no relief ever to be given to the immediate objects who should be the persons benefited by our bounty? Are those who, in the prosperity proceeding from their unceasing and ill-paid toil, added their quota to the succor of others, now that poverty has fallen on them, to be left the sport of fortune and the slaves of suffering, do good, we say, in God's name, to all, if good can be done to all, but do not rob the lamb of its natural due its mother's nourishment to waste it on an alien, there is no spirit of illiberality in these remarks, they are put forward to advocate the rights of our own destitute countrymen to claim for them a share of the lavish commiseration bestowed on others to call attention to the desolation of their hearths the wreck of their comforts the awful condition of their starving and dependent families and to give the really charitable an opportunity of reserving some of their kindnesses for home consumption. Let this be their just object, and not one among the relieved would withhold his might from their suffering fellows in other climes, but in heaven's name. Let the adage root itself once more in every Englishman's heart of hearts, and once more let charity begin at home. 
the fire at the ADLPHI theater. Yates was nearly treating the enlightened British public with an antidote to the vast receptacle of 8.000 tons of water, by setting fire to the saloon chimney. Great as the consternation of the audience was in the front, it was far exceeded by the alarm of the actors behind the curtain, for they are so sensible of the manager's daring genius, that they concluded he had set fire to the house in order to convert the space usually devoted to illusion into the area of reality. The great Mr. Freeborn actually rushed out of the theater without his rouge. Little Paul drank off a glass of neat water. Mr. John Sanders was met at the end of Maiden Lane, with his legs thrust into the sleeves of his coat, and the rest of his body encased in the upper part of a property dragon, whilst little round Wilkinson was vainly endeavoring to squeeze himself into a wooden water spout. Had he succeeded he might have applied for the reward offered by the Royal Society for a method of the crimes of eating. Sir Robert Peel and Her Majesty's ministers have, we learn, taken a hint in criminal jurisprudence from His Worship the Mayor of Reading, and are now preparing a bill for Parliament, which they trust will be the means of checking the alarming desire for food which has begun to spread amongst the poorer classes of society. The crime of eating has latterly been indulged into such an immoderate extent by the operatives of Yorkshire and the other manufacturing districts that we do not wonder at our sagacious premier adopting strong measures to suppress the unnatural and increasing appetites of the people, taking up the sound judicial views of the great functionary about alluded to, who committed Bernard Cavanaugh, the fasting man, to prison for smelling at a savoy and a slice of ham. Sir Robert has laid down a graduated we mean a sliding scale of penalties for the crime of eating, proportioning, with the most delicate skill the exact amount of the punishment to the enormity of the offense. By his profound wisdom he has discovered that the great increase of crime in these countries is entirely attributable to overfeeding the multitude. Like the worthy Mr. Bumble, in Oliver Twist, he protests, it is meat and not madness, that ails the people. He can even trace the origin of every felony to the particular kind of food in which the felon has indulged. He detects incipient incendiarism in eggs and Friday bacon homicide in an Irish through robbery and housebreaking in a basin of mutton broth and an aggravated assault in a pork sausage. Upon this noble and statesmanlike theory Sir Robert has based a bill which, when it becomes the law of the land, will, we feel assured, tend effectually to keep the rebellious stomachs of the people in a state of wholesome depletion, and as we now punish those offenders who break the Queen's peace, we shall, in like manner, then inflict the law upon the hungry scoundrels who dare to break the Queen's fast. We have been enabled, through a private source, to obtain the following authentic copy of Sir Robert's scale of the offenses under the intended act, with the penalty attached to each, viz. for penny rolls or busters imprisonment not exceeding a week, for bread of any kind, with imprisonment for a month, cheese or butter for savoys, German sausages, one month's imprisonment, with and black pudding's hard labor, for a slice of ham, bacon, or imprisonment for three months, meat of any kind and exercise on the treadmill, for a hearty dinner on beef and transportation for seven years, pudding for due, with a pot of home-brewed transportation for life, ale, as these offenses apply only to those who had no right to eat, the wealthy and respectable portion of society need be under no apprehension that they will be exposed to any inconvenience by the operation of the new law. Nobody cares and Wellington has justified his claim to the sobriquet of the Iron Duke by the manner in which he treated the deputation from Paisley. His grace excused himself from listening to the tale of misery which several gentlemen had traveled 500 miles to narrate to him. 
on the plea that he was not a minister of the crown, yet we had a right to presume that the Queen prorogued Parliament upon his grace's recommendation, so if he be not one of Peel's cabinet what is he, we suppose hints how to enjoy an omnibus, one, on getting in here neither for toes or knees of the passengers, but drive your way up to the top, steadying yourself by the shoulders, chests, or even faces of those seated, two, seat yourself with a jerk, pushing against one neighbor, and thrusting your elbow into the side of the other, you will thus get plenty of room, three, if possible, enter with a stick or umbrella, plant at full length, so that any sudden move of the bus, may thrust it into someone's stomach, it will make you feared, four, when seated, occupy, if possible, the room of two, and revenge the treatment you have received on entering, by throwing every opposition in the way of a newcomer, especially if it be a woman with a child in her arms, it is a good plan to arrest firmly on your umbrella, with your arms at right angles, five, open or shut windows as it suits you, men with colds, or women with toothaches, have no business in omnibuses, if they don't like it, they can get out, no one forces them to ride, six, Young bucks may stare any decent woman out of countenance, put their legs up along the seats, and if going out to dinner, wipe the mud off their boots on the seats, they are only plush. 7. If middle-aged gentlemen are musical or political, they can dislocate a tune in something between a bark and a grumble, or endeavor to provoke an argument by declaring very loudly that Lord R. or the Duke is a thorough scoundrel, according to their opinion of public affairs, if this don't take. They can keep up a perpetual squabble with the conductor, which will show they think themselves of some importance. 8. Ladies wishing to be agreeable can bring lap dogs, large paper parcels, and children, to whom an omnibus is a ship, though you wish you were out of their reach. 9. Conductors should particularly aim to take up laundresses returning with a large family washing, bakers and butchers in their working jackets, and, if a wet day, should be particular not to pull up to the pathway. 10. For want of space, the following brevities must suffice, never say where you wish to stop until after you have passed the place, and then pull them up with a sudden jerk, keep your money in your waistcoat pocket, and button your under and upper coat completely, and never attempt to get at it until the door is opened, and then let it be nothing under a five shilling piece, never ask anyone to speak to the conductor for you, but hit or poke him with your umbrella or stick, or wrap his hand as it rests on the door, he puts it there on purpose, always stop the wrong omnibus, and ask if the Paddington goes to a Walworth, and the coming to a white chapel, you are not obliged to read all the rigmarole they paint on the outside, finally, consider an omnibus as a carriage, a bed, a public house, a place of amusement, or a boxing ring, where you may ride, sleep, smoke, chaff, or quarrel, as it may suit you, Peter the Great Fool, the following colloquy occurred between a candidate for suicidal fame and the city's Peter Laureate, so, sir, you tried to hang yourself, did you, in course I did, or I should not have put my head in the noose, you had no business to do so, I did it for my pleasure, not for business, I'll let you see, sir, you shan't do it either for fun or earnest, are you a Tory, sir Peter, a Tory, sir, member sir, I'm a magistrate, God. That's why you interfere, you must be a low red, or you wouldn't prevent a man from the wise man of the East. Sir Peter Lorry begs Punch to inform him, which of Arabia's children is alluded to in Moore's beautiful ballad, Farewell to thee, Arabi's daughter. He presumes it is Miss Elizabeth, commonly called Bass Arabia, Songs of the City.
Munger VII. I love the night with its mantle dark, that hangs like a cloak on the face of the sky, oh what to me is the song of the lark? Give me the owl, and I'll tell you why. It is that at night I can walk abroad, which I may not do in the garish day, without being met in the streets, and bored by some cursed gun, that I cannot pay. No, no, night let it ever be, the owl, the owl, the owl, is the bird for me. Then tempt me not with thy soft guitar, and thy voice like the sound of a silver bell, to take a stroll, where the cold ones are who in lanes, not of trees but of fetters, dwell, but wait until night upsets its ink on the earth, on the sea, and all over the sky, and then I'll go to the wide world's brink with the girl I love, without feeling shy, oh, then, may it night forever be, the owl, the owl, the owl, is the bird for me. But you turned aside. Ah, did you know? What by searching the office you'd plainly see. That I'm hunted down. Like a Richard Rowe. You'd not thus avert your eyes from me. Oh never did giant look after Thumb when the latter was keeping out of the way with a more tremendous thief of Thumb than I'm pursued by a dread five thought. To wit. To wit. Is the owl's sad song. A writ. A writ. A writ. When mid the throng. Is ringing in my ears the whole day long. Ah me. Night let it be, the owl, the stately owl, is the bird yes, the bird for me. Fetter Lane is clearly alluded to by the poet, it is believed to be the bailiff's quarter, popish red dress. The examiner states that there is no such fabric as scarlet cloth made in Ireland, if this be true. The lady of Babylon, who was said to reside in that country, and to be addicted to scarlet clothing, must be in a very destitute condition. A spoon case. A well-dressed individual has lately been visiting the lodging house keepers of the metropolis. He engages lodgings but being, as he says, just arrived from a long journey, he begs to have dinner before he returns to the coach office for his luggage. This request being usually complied with, the new lodger, while the table is being laid, watches his opportunity and bolts with the silver spoons. Sir Peter Lorry says, that since this practice of filching the spoons has commenced, he does not feel himself safe in his own house. He only hopes the thief may be brought before him, and he promises to give him his dessert, by committing him without a dab for Lorry, Sir Peter Lorry, on a recent visit to Billingsgate for the purpose of making what he calls a pisciatory tour, was much astonished at the vigorous performance of various of the real live fish, some of which, as he sagely remarked, appeared to be perfect dabs at jumping and no doubt legitimate descendants from some particularly S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P.'s corner. If old Nick were to lose his tail, where should he go to supply the deficiency? To a gin palace, because there they retail bad spirits. Mr. G. who has a very ugly wife, named Euphemia, was asked lately why his spouse was the image of himself and, to his great annoyance, discovered that it was because she was his effigy. I could make better than the above myself, e.g. In what way should Her Majesty stand upon a bill in Parliament so as to quash it? By putting her veto veto on it. Printer's devil. I floored Benbow Disraeli the other day with the following, Ben. Said I, if I were going to buy a violin, what method should I take to get it cheap? Benji looked rather more foolish than usual, and gave it up. Why, you ninny. I replied, I should buy an ounce of castor oil, and then I would get a file in violin. I think I had him there. Why is a female of the canine species suckling her whelps like a philosophic principle? Because she is a dogma dogma. What part of a horse's foot is like an irate governor? The pastern postern. 
Why is the march of a funeral procession like a turnpike? Because it is a toll gate toll gate. Who is the greatest literary star? The poet Astor. Why is an Israelite named William Solomon similar to a great public festival? Because he is a jubilee jubilee. Why are polished manners like a pea jacket? Because they are a dress address. Why are swallows like a leak head over heels? Because they are a somerset a somerset. Cutting it rather short. The unexpected adjournment of the court of Queen's Bench. By Lord Denman. On last Thursday. Has filled the bar with consternation. What is to become of our clients? Said Fitzroy Kelly. And of our fees? Added the Solicitor General. I feel deeply for my clients. Sighed Sergeant Bompas. We all compassionate them. Brother. Observed Wilde. In short. One and all declare it was a most arbitrary and unprecedented curtailment of their little term and, to say the least of it, national distress. The teetotalers say that the majority of the people are victims to Bacchus. In the present hard times they are more likely to be victims to songs for the sentimental. Number 12. Away! Away! Ye hopes which stray like jeering specters from the tomb. Ye cannot light the coming night. And shall not mock its gathering gloom. Though dark the cloud shall form my shroud though danger league with racking doubt away. Away! Ye shall not stay when all my joys are up the spout. I little knew when first ye threw your brightening beams on coming hours. That time would see me turn from thee. And fly your sweet delusive powers. Now. Nerve to a low. No more I'll know how hope deferred makes mortal sick. The gathering storm may whelm my form. But I will suffer like a brick. Lower is raillery. When Sir Peter Loring had taken his seat the other morning in that temple of Mona's, the Guildhall Justice Room, he was thus addressed by Payne, the clerk, I see, Sir Peter, an advertisement in the Times, announcing the sale of shares in the railroad from Paris to Rouen, would you advise me to invest a little loose cash in that speculation? Certainly not, replied the knight, nor in any other railway, depend upon it, they all lead to the same terminus, ruin, pain having exclaimed that this was the best thing he had ever heard, was presented by our own alderman with a shilling, accompanied with a request that he would get his hair cropped to the magisterial standard, a meeting of old acquaintances, at the sale of the library of the late Theodore Hook. A curious copy of The Complete Jester was knocked down to our own colonel. Delighted with his prize, he ran home, intending to allay in a fresh stock of bonds most, but what was his amazement on finding that all the jokes contained in the volume were those with which he has been in the habit of entertaining the public these last forty years. Sibby declares that the sight of so many old friends actually brought the tears into his eyes. Punch's theater, love extempore, as the hero of a romantic play is obliged to possess all the cardinal virtues and all the intellectual accomplishments, so the hero of a farce is bound to be a fool, one of the greatest and at the same time one of the best fools it has been our pleasure to be introduced to for some time is Mr. Titus Livingstone. In the new farce of Love Extempore, Mr. Titus Livingstone possesses an excellent heart, a good fortune, and an uncommon stock of modesty. His intellects are, however, far from brilliant, indeed, but for one trait in his character he would pass for an idiot. He has had the good sense never as yet to fall in love, in fact. The farce is founded upon that identical incident of his life which occasioned him to suppose that he had taken the tender passion extempore. Some sort of villainy seems absolutely necessary to every species of play. To continue the parallel we commenced with between tragedy and farce, we observe that in the former he is usually such a person as Spinola, in Nina Sforza, 
whilst a farce villain turns out to be in most instances an intriguing widow, a lawyer, or a mischievous young lady. The rogue in love extempore is Mrs. Courtney, a widow, who, with the assistance of Sir Harry Nugent, contrives a plot by which the hitherto insensible Livingstone shall fall a victim to a love and her friend Prudence Oldstock, with whose mother and sister the widow and her company in Triguan are staying on a visit. The moment fatal to a Livingstone's virgin heart and in restrained liberty arrives, he calls to pay a morning visit, and instantly the deep design is put into execution. Sir Harry begins by a most extravagant puff preliminary of the talents, accomplishments, virtues, beauty, disposition, endowments, and graces belonging to the enchanting prudence. He and the widow exhibit her drawings. Livingstone is in raptures, or pretends to be for he is not an ill-bred man. What a piercing expression flashes from those studies of Eisenhower. What an artistical grouping of legs. What a Saracen's head upon Snow Hill-like ferocity frowns from that Indian chief. At this juncture the captivating artist is herself introduced. Mr. Livingstone's modesty strikes him into a heap of confusion. He sighs and looks, and looks and sighs again. He does not know what to say, or how to say it, so that the trembling bachelor may become a wise and good lover. He stutters and hems in the utmost distress, to increase which, all his tormentors turn up the stage, leaving him to entertain the lady alone. The sketches naturally suggest a topic, and, plunging in media's rays at once, he vehemently praises her legs. The lady is astonished, and the mom alarmed, but having explained that the allusion was to the drawings, he is afterwards punished for the blunder by being threatened with a song, though at a loss to find out what he has done to deserve such an infliction. He submits, for he is very sleepy, and sinks into a chair in an attitude of supposed attention, but really in a posture best adapted for a nap. When the song is ended the applause of course comes in, this awakens Livingstone in a fright, he starts, and throws down a harp in his fall. After this contretemps, the villainy of the widow and her ally takes a different turn. In a love affair there are generally two parties, and Miss Prudence has got to be persuaded that she is in love. This it is not difficult to accomplish. She being no more overburdened with penetration than the gentleman they are so kind as to say she is in love with. So far all goes on well, for she is soon convinced that she is enamored to the last extremity. Livingstone having a sort of glimmering that the danger so long averted at length impends over him that he is falling into the trap of love, with every chance of the fall continuing down to the bottomless pit of matrimony, determines to avert the catastrophe by flight. The pair of villains, however, set up a cry of, stop thief and he is brought back. Sir Harry appeals to his feelings. Good gracious, is he so base, so dishonorable, so heartless, to rob an innocent, and suspecting, and accomplished girl of her heart, and then wickedly desert her. Oh, no. In short, having already persuaded the poor man that he is in love, Sir Harry convinces him that he would also be a deceiver, and Livingstone would have returned like a lamb to the slaughter but for a new incident. He has an uncle who is engaged in a lawsuit with some of Mrs. Courtney's family. To bring this litigation to an amicable end it has been proposed that Livingstone should marry the widow's sister. Here is a discovery. So, the deep widow has been unwittingly plotting against her own sister. Things must be altered, and so they are, in no time. For she persuades the easy hero that Nugent is in love with Prudence himself, but, finding she adores her new lover, has magnanimously given up his claims in his favor. This has the desired effect, for Livingstone will have no such noble sacrifice made on his account. He seeks Sir Harry, who, 
discovering the double design of the profound widow, talks as immensely magnanimous as they do in classic dramas. In short, both play at Rome and still the end of the piece, the hero and heroine being at last fully persuaded that they have each really fallen in love extempore. This idea of persuading two persons into the bonds of love of having all the courting done at second hand, is admirably worked out. Livingstone is a well-drawn character, so well, so naturally painted, that he hardly deserves to be the hero of a farce, although exceedingly soft. He is a well-bred fool though somewhat fat for the actor as Mr. David Race, he is not altogether inelegant. The gentleman who does the theatrical metaphysics in the Morning Herald has described him as a capital specimen of physical obesity and moral tunity, which we quote to save ourselves trouble, for the force of description can no further go. Prudence is also inimitable a march of intellect young lady without brains, who knows the names of the five large rivers in America, and how many bones there are in the gills of a turbot. In Miss P. Horton's hands her mechanical acquirements were done ample justice to. The cold and meaning love scene was rendered mainly by her acting sick. Actually, in the dramatic article of that paper, Wednesday, 24th halt, in fine, the farce is altogether 11 of th.